Offences Against Oneself, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2007. Offences Against Oneself, Pederasty, by Jeremy Bentham, Part 1. To what class of offences shall we refer these irregularities of the venereal appetite, which are styled unnatural? When hidden from the public eye, there could be no colour for placing them anywhere else. Could they find a place anywhere, it would be here. I have been tormenting myself for years, to find, if possible, a sufficient ground for treating them with the severity with which they are treated, at this time of day, by all European nations. But upon the principal utility, I can find none. Offences of impurity, their varieties. The abominations that come under this heading have this property in common, in this respect, that they consist in procuring certain sensations by means of an improper object. The impropriety, then, may consist either in making use of an object, one, of the proper species, but at an improper time, for instance, after death. 2. Of an object of the proper species and sex, and at a proper time, but in an improper part. 3. Of an object of the proper species, but the wrong sex, this is distinguished from the rest by the name of pederasty. 4. Of a wrong species. 5. In procuring this sensation by oneself, without the help of any other sensitive object. Pederasty makes the greatest figure. The third being that which makes the most figure in the world, it will be proper to give that the principal share of our attention. In settling the nature and tendency of this offence, we shall for the most part have settled the nature and tendency of all the other offences that come under this disgusting catalogue. Whether they produce any primary mischief. 1. As to any primary mischief, it is evident that it produces no pain in any one. On the contrary, it produces pleasure, and that a pleasure which, by their perverted taste, is by this supposition preferred to that pleasure which is, in general, reputed the greatest. The partners are both willing. If either of them be unwilling, the act is not that which we have here in view. It is an offence totally different in its nature of effects. It is a personal injury. It is a kind of rape. As a secondary mischief, whether they produce any alarm in the community. 2. As to any secondary mischief, it produces not any pain of apprehension. For what is there in it for anybody to be afraid of? By the supposition, those only are the objects of it who choose to be so, who find a pleasure, for it seems they do, in being so. Whether any danger. 3. As to any danger exclusive of pain, the danger, if any, must consist in the tendency of the example. But what is the tendency of this example? To dispose others to engage in the same practices, but this practice, for anything that has yet appeared, produces not pain of any kind to any one. Reasons that have commonly been assigned. Hitherto we have found no reason for punishing it at all much less for punishing it with the degree of severity with which it has been commonly punished. Let us see what force there is in the reasons that have been commonly assigned for punishing it. 
the whole tribe of writers on english law who none of them knows any more what they mean by the word peace than they do by many other of the expressions that are most familiar to them reckon this among offences against the peace it is accordingly treated in all respects as an offence against the peace they likewise reckon forgery coining and all sorts of frauds among offences against the peace according to the same writers it is doubted whether adultery be not a breach of the peace it is certain however that whenever a gallant accepts an invitation of another man's wife he does it with force and arms this needs no comment whether against the security of the individual sir w blackstone is more particular according to him it is not only an offence against the peace but it is of that division of offences against the peace which are offences against security according to the same writer if a man is guilty of this kind of filthiness for instance with a cow as some men have been known to be it is an offence against somebody's security he does not say whose security for the law makes no distinction in its ordinances so neither does this lawyer or any other english lawyer in his comments make any distinction between this kind of filthiness when committed with the consent of the patient and the same kind of filthiness when committed against his consent and by violence it is just as if a man were to make no distinction between concubinage and rape whether it debilitates montesquieu the reason that montesquieu gives for reprobating it is the weakness which he seems to suppose it to have a tendency to bring upon those who practice it esprit des lois book twelve chapter six il faudra le proscrire quand il ne fera que donner à un sexe les faiblesses de l'autre et préparer à une vieillesse infâme par une jeunesse honteuse it ought to be prescribed were it only for giving to the one sex the weaknesses of the other and paving the way by a scandalous youth for an infamous old age this if it be true in fact is a reason of a very different complexion from any of the preceding and it is on the ground of this reason as being the most plausible one that i have ranked the offence under its present head as far as it is true in fact the act ought to be regarded in the first place as coming within the list of offences against oneself of offences of imprudence in the next place as an offence against the state an offence the tendency of which is to diminish the public force if however it tends to weaken a man it is not any single act that can in any sensible degree have that effect it can only be the habit the act thus will become obnoxious as evidencing the existence in probability of the habit this enervating tendency be it what it may if it is to be taken as a ground for treating the practice in question with a degree of severity which is not bestowed upon the regular way of gratifying the venereal appetite must be greater in the former case than in the latter is it so if the affirmative can be shown it must be either by arguments a priori drawn from considerations of the nature of the human frame or from experience are there any such arguments from physiology i have never heard of any i can think of none what says history what says historical experience the result of this can be measured only upon a large scale or upon a very general survey among the modern nations it is comparatively but rare in modern rome it is perhaps not very uncommon in paris 
probably not quite so common, in London still less frequent, in Edinburgh or Amsterdam you scarce hear of it two or three times in a century. In Athens and in ancient Rome, in the most flourishing periods of the history of those capitals, regular intercourse between the sexes was scarcely much more common. It was upon the same footing throughout Greece. Everybody practised it. Nobody was ashamed of it. They might be ashamed of what they looked upon as an excess in it, or they might be ashamed of it as a weakness, as a propensity that had a tendency to distract men from more worthy and important occupations, just as a man with us might be ashamed of excess or weakness in his love for women. In itself one may be sure they were not ashamed of it. A Jessilos, upon somebody's taking notice of the care he took to avoid taking any familiarities with a youth who passed for being handsome, acknowledges it, indeed, but upon what ground? Not on account of the turpitude, but the danger. Xenophon, in his Retreat of the Ten Thousand, gives an anecdote of himself in which he mentions himself as particularly addicted to this practice without seeming to entertain the least suspicion that any apology was necessary. In his account of Socrates' conversation, he introduces that philosopher censuring or rather making merry with a young man for his attachment to the same practice. But in what light does he consider it? As a weakness unbecoming to a philosopher, not as a turpitude or a crime unbecoming to a man. It is not because an object of the one sex, more than one of the other, is improper game, but on account of the time that must be spent and the humiliation submitted to in the pursuit. What is remarkable is that there is scarce a striking character in antiquity, nor one that, in other respects, men are in use to cite as virtuous, of whom it does not appear, by one circumstance or another, that he was infected with this inconceivable propensity. It makes a conspicuous figure in the very opening of Thucydides' history, and by an odd accident it was to the spirit of two young men kindled and supported by this passion that Athens, according to that historian, stood indebted on a trying occasion for the recovery of its liberty. The firmness and spirit of the Theban band, the band of lovers as it was called, is famous in history, and the principle by which the union among the members of it was commonly supposed to be cemented is well known. Plutarch, in Vita Pelopide, Esprit des Lois, Book 4, Chapter 8. Many moderns, and among others Mr. Voltaire, dispute the fact, but that intelligent philosopher sufficiently intimates the ground of his incredulity. If he does not believe it, it is because he likes not to believe it. What the ancients called love in such a case was what we call platonic, that is, was not love but friendship. But the Greeks knew the difference between love and friendship as well as we. They had distinct terms to signify them by. It seems reasonable, therefore, to suppose that when they say love, they mean love, and when they say friendship only, they mean friendship only. And with regard to Xenophon and his master Socrates, and his fellow-scholar Plato, it seems more reasonable to believe them to have been addicted to this taste, when they, or any of them, tell us so in express terms, than to trust to the interpretations, however ingenious and however well-intended, of any man who write at this time of day, when they tell us it was no such thing. Not to insist upon Agesilos and Xenophon, it appears, by one circumstance or another, that Themistocles, 
Aristides, Epaminondus, Alcibiades, Alexander, and perhaps the greatest number of the heroes of Greece were infected with this taste. Not that the historians are at the pains of informing us so expressly, for it was not extraordinary enough to make it worth their while, but it comes out collaterally in the course of the transactions they have occasion to relate. It were hardly worth while after this to take up much more time in proving the same thing with regard to the Romans, in naming distinguished persons of consequence whom history has mentioned as partakers in this abomination, or in bringing passages to show that the same depraved taste prevailed generally among the people, not to mention notorious profligates such as the Antonys, the Claudiuses, the Pisos, the Gabiniuses of the age, Cicero, if we may believe either his enemy Sallust or his admirer Pliny, neither avoided this propensity, nor thought proper to dissemble it. That austere philosopher, after writing books to prove that pleasure was no good, and that pain was no evil, and that virtue could make a man happy upon the rack, that affectionate husband, in the midst of all his tenderness for his wife, Terentia, could play at blind man's buff with his secretary for pipes, and make verses upon this notable exploit of gallantry. With regard to the people in general, it may be presumed that if the gods amused themselves in this way, if Apollo loved Hyacinthus, if Hercules could be in a frenzy for the loss of Hylas, and the father of gods and men could solace himself with Ganymede, it was neither an odious nor an unfrequent thing for mortal men to do so. The gods we make, it has been well and often said, we make always after our own image. In times much anterior to those of Cicero, and in which according to the common prejudice the morals of the people are supposed to have been proportionately more pure, when certain festivals were suppressed on account of their furnishing opportunities for debauchery, irregularities of this kind were observed, according to Livy, to be more abundant than ordinary intrigues. This circumstance would scarcely perhaps have been thought worth mentioning had not the idea of excess in this, as it is apt to do on all occasions, struck the imagination of the historian as well as of the magistrate whose administration he is recording. This much will probably be thought enough. If more proofs were necessary, it were easy to collect materials enough to fill a huge, a tedious, and a very disgusting volume. It appears, then, that this propensity was universally predominant among the ancient Greeks and Romans, among the military as much as any. The ancient Greeks and Romans, however, are commonly reputed as a much stouter as well as a much braver people than the stoutest and bravest of any of the modern nations of Europe. They appear to have been stouter, at least, in a very considerable degree than the French, in whom this propensity is not very common, and still more than the Scotch, in whom it is still less common. And this, although the climate even of Greece, was a great deal warmer, and in that respect more enervating than that of modern Scotland. If, then, this practice was in those ancient warm countries, attended with any enervating effects, they were much more than counteracted by the superiority of blank in the exertions which were then required by the military education over and above those which are now called for by ordinary labour. But if there be any ground derived from history for attributing to it any such enervating effects, it is more than I can find. Whether it enervates the patient more than the agent. Montesquieu, however, seems to make a distinction. He seems to suppose these enervating effects 
to be exerted principally upon the person who is the patient in such a business. This distinction does not seem very satisfactory in any point of view. Is there any reason for supposing it to be a fixed one, between persons of the same age, actuated by the same incomprehensible desires, would not the parts they took in the business be convertible? Would not the patient be the agent in his turn? If it were not so, the person on whom he supposes these effects to be the greatest is precisely the person with regard to whom it is most difficult to conceive whence those consequences should result. In the one case, there is exhaustion, which when carried to excess may be followed by debility. In the other case, there is no such thing. What says history? In regard to this point too, in particular, what says history? As the two parts that a man may take in this business are so naturally convertible, however frequently he may have taken a passive part, it will not ordinarily appear. According to the notions of the ancients, there was something degrading in the passive part, which was not in the active. It was ministering to the pleasure, for so we are obliged to call it, of another without participation. It was making oneself the property of another man. It was playing the woman's part. It was therefore unmanly. Pedicarbo vos et irremarbo. Antony, pathise et synode fury. Catullus. On the other hand, to take the active part was to make use of another for one's pleasure. It was making another man one's property. It was preserving the manly, the commanding character. Accordingly, Solon, in his laws, prohibits slaves from bearing an active part where the passive is borne by a freeman. In the few instances in which we happen to hear of a person's taking the passive part, there is nothing to favour the above-mentioned hypothesis. The beautiful Alcibiades, who in his youth, says Cornelius Nepos, after the manner of the Greeks, was beloved by many, was not remarkable either for his weakness or for cowardice, at least, blank, did not find it so. The Clodius, whom Cicero scoffs at for his servile obsequiousness to the appetite of Curio, was one of the most daring and turbulent spirits in all Rome. Julius Caesar was looked upon as a man of tolerable courage in his day, notwithstanding the complacence he showed in his youth to the king of Bithynia, Nicomedes. Aristotle, the inquisitive and observing Aristotle, whose physiological disquinctions are looked upon as some of the best of his works, Aristotle who, if there had been anything in this notion, had every opportunity and inducement to notice and confirm it, gives no intimation of any such thing. On the contrary, he sits down very soberly to distribute the male half of the species under two classes, one class having a natural propensity, he says, to bear a passive part in such a business, as the other have to take an active part. Problemata, Section 4, Article 27. The former of these propensities he attributes to a peculiarity of organisation, analogous to that of women. The whole passage is abundantly obscure, and shows in how imperfect a state of anatomical knowledge was his time. This observation, it must be confessed, is not much more satisfactory than that other of the same philosopher when he speaks of two sorts of men, the one born to be masters, the other to be slaves. If, however, there had appeared any reason for supposing this practice, either with regard to the passive or the active part of it, 
to have had any remarkable effects in the way of debilitation upon those who were addicted to it, he would have hardly said so much upon the subject, without taking notice of that circumstance. End of part one.